Good morning, afternoon or evening everyone. My name is Jack Baker and welcome to the final episode of The Plight of the Pangolin. On the last show we discussed the COVID-19 pandemic and the effect it is having on the pangolin and talked to Professor Joe Sharp about zoonosis. Additionally, throughout this series we have listened to voices from around the world and discussed some of the major threats facing the pangolin. On this week's show, we conclude by bringing together those two worlds and talking to Penelope Jacobs about her relevant lived experiences living in Southeast Asia during this pandemic. Additionally, following this interview, we will take a brief moment to reflect on the series as a whole and think about what we should be taking away and enacting in our own lives. With that being said, let's get into our final interview with the wonderful Penelope Jacobs. So welcome back to the show. Today's guest is my good friend, Penny Jacobs. Now, having studied international relations and international law, she's currently studying international development practice while living in Hong Kong. And so can provide a very different perspective on some issues surrounding the pangolin than I could alone. First of all, how are you doing today, Penny? I'm doing very well, thank you, Jack. Happy to be here talking to you. Yes, it is very nice. Um, for the listeners at home, I can see her big smiley face just now. It is very, very nice to see her. I gave a brief rundown of your life history there. I was wondering if you could tell the audience uh, a little bit more about yourself and, and your background. Sure, no problem. Um, well, I'm from Australia originally, but I'm half Chinese. My mum is from Hong Kong, so I suppose that's quite relevant for today's conversation because growing up I spent a lot of time here on holidays. I've also lived here, worked here for a while. Um, otherwise I also spent about a year studying in mainland China uh, in 2010. It was a very nice experience as well. And otherwise um, nothing else I suppose is that relevant except for of course the fact that I was in Scotland studying as well which is how we met. So. <laughs> Yes, I think that's a very interesting perspective to have, because not only have you experienced living in the West, but also you've experienced living in other parts of the world. You grew up in other parts of the world. So you bring a very worldly perspective to what we're going to be talking about today, which is the misconceptions surrounding the pangolin in the West regarding their treatment in other parts of the world. Does that sound good to you? Yeah, sounds great. Perfect. Then I think the first thing that we just need to kind of tackle is a lot of Western discourse paints this picture of you could walk down any street in Hong Kong, any street in Vietnam, any street in China, and walk into any shop and pick up pangolin scales, medicine that contains pangolin. That does seem like a bit of an exaggeration to me. I think I read an article that was called China's insatiable thirst for pangolin. I was hoping you'd be able to clarify a little bit that misconception. And just kind of talk about your experience. Have you ever seen pangolin for sale? Have you ever heard anybody you know talk about buying those sorts of products? Well, the short answer to that, which I'm going to elaborate on definitely, is no, I've never seen it myself. I don't think that any of my family or friends who've traveled quite extensively through the region have seen any themselves either. Um, I'll think back to my time in China, granted it was like a decade ago, so my memory on the details might be a bit fuzzy, 
Um, but no, I I never really saw any pangolin for sale anywhere, nor did I really have much of an awareness actually back then that it was a problem, um, that it is a highly trafficked species and that it's, you know, very significant for use in traditional Chinese medicine. Perhaps that could have been because at the time there was like a language barrier or a cultural barrier. I just moved there and I was just learning. But I'd say on the whole, my awareness of the issue was pretty limited and only kind of increased gradually over the years. With regards to Hong Kong, I've also never seen any, but I I am much more aware that it's a problem because if you go through the Hong Kong airport, there's a like glass cabinet that I always used to be really interested by as a kid. And it's full of specimens of like endangered animals, uh, specimens of them. And it says like trading in these animals is illegal. And there is a, a pangolin's ivory and there's also pangolin scales in there. So I remember being really interested by that as a kid because I was kind of like, what is a pangolin? Um, but, but yeah, that's that's probably my only awareness of it. And other than that, just seeing in the news when they've had another haul of pangolin scales, um, you know, as I'm sure you're aware, Hong Kong is quite a significant hub of smuggling of pangolin scales and pangolin actually just specimens of frozen pangolin I believe sometimes as well. Yes I think it's kind of amazing when you look at the maps of trafficking some of the ways in and out of different countries they end up going backwards and forwards up and down Asia about four times before they end up where they're supposed to be and going through hubs like Hong Kong just because there's so much goes through there every day that it's very easy for things to to slip through I would imagine a lot of the time Um, but it seems like Certainly, there has been more and more cases of things being being caught at borders. The UN Wildlife Trafficking Report for, for this year talked about how last year uh, an 8.3 tonne shipment of pangolin was caught at Hong Kong airport. That's insane, insane to me. I was wondering, does that sort of thing get much media coverage where you are? And Yeah, I would... I would say that it, it does. Um, it, it certainly makes the news. I remember seeing seeing in the, the South China Morning Post, which is our sort of one of our main newspapers here, that they'd made this seizure. I think especially more in recent years, like maybe the past five years or so, there's been more attention drawn to it. I think that's because legal protections and also awareness have increased. So I mentioned to you that my awareness was lacking in the past and has kind of increased over the years. I think that's kind of maybe in line with a lot of people here. And I know that um, acquiring pangolin in Hong Kong has allegedly become much more, much, much more difficult than it used to be. I think I was reading this expose or an attempted expose that one of the local newspapers tried to do where they went to a district that's really known for having a lot, a lot of like traditional Chinese medicine stores because certainly in Hong Kong you, you wouldn't find it anywhere else like there's no presence of it in in markets or anything like that it would really be purely in probably scale form for medicinal use they went to about 20 stores I think and asked at each one you know could I get some pangolin scale and a lot of them said you know don't you know it's in danger like we don't stock that anymore. We haven't for a while. Like it's illegal, stuff like that. I think they only found one person who was willing to sell them any. And even then they only had like a very limited quantity. So I'm not sure if that's indicative of like a change in general or, you know, 
whether or not it's kind of a more down low type thing where it's like, you know, contacts selling to other contacts. I, I, I mean, I, it's hard to say, but it does seem like generally speaking, it's, it's much, much harder to acquire than perhaps people would believe that it is in the West, certainly. Mm-hmm. I think that's very interesting. Yeah, because I think a lot of the, the news stories we see as I've said, make it very clear that this is, or try to make it very clear, try to paint this kind of picture of it being very common and everybody being aware of this going on, which is very interesting given your experiences that you've just talked about. I also think what's interesting is when you were talking about how you only became aware of it as as you got older, while the West is very quick to to perhaps criticise and kind of talk about, oh, this is going on, this is going on, this is going on. When you talk to people here, if I say, what is a pangolin? To the majority of my friends and family, they would be actually be unaware of what a pangolin was. So it's interesting, I suppose, that there's this growing awareness and care in the place which is often villainized for using these animals. But in reality, if you were to walk down a street here where people would be outraged if you told them what was going on, they couldn't tell you what the animal being taken and, and used is. So it's a kind of interesting kind of, I guess, subversion of the, the usual right. narrative there. I suppose Hong Kong also has its own sort of stake in that as well, because there is a, a species of pangolin that was indigenous to Hong Kong. I'm not sure actually whether it's now completely extinct or if it's super endangered, but I definitely think the dwindling numbers of that over time at least in in Hong Kong, um, probably sparked some kind of greater awareness. I mean, being confronted with the endangerment and extinction of a native species is always kind of a wake-up call, or you'd hope it is anyway. Yes, it's kind of a shame it has to get to that point before people do something. But if it takes that to kind of get attention, and hopefully we can bring these things back from the, the very brink, I guess it's I guess there's a positive to be found in there in there somewhere. I think another idea you kind of touched upon briefly that I wanted to, to come back to was actually when you were talking a little bit about where you would go to purchase these sorts of things and where that expose you were referencing, where they kind of went to look for these things. And that was a lot of traditional medicine kind of shops opposed to wet markets. I think especially in light of the current situation, these kind of markets, again, have been painted as somewhere that is dangerous and unethical um, in a lot of newspapers in Scotland, certainly. Um, And if you look from narratives or if you look at the narratives emerging from other places in the world, the US seems to be especially keen on these kind of ideas. I think it would be very helpful for you to kind of clarify this concept for people. So um, having spent a fair bit of time growing up in Hong Kong, Hong Kong actually has a very distinct and um, historically significant, I suppose, culturally significant as well, kind of wet market culture. Um, It's, you know, as the name implies, uh, a market. The wet um, denotes that it sells like produce as opposed to, you know, other household goods type stuff and that produce is not necessarily live either there are some wet markets that sell exclusively you know vegetables or already processed um, meats and that that sort of stuff but yes there are some wet markets that do trade in live animals so poultry is uh, quite a, a common example and seafood as well 
And one of the things that kind of sets the live trade wet markets apart is that you can basically go and pick the specimen that you want, um, and then it's prepared for you right there. So a lot of the significance for it is not just cultural, like a lot of Hong Kongers will have grown up with this. If they don't shop at them themselves, then definitely like their parents or their grandparents did. Um, a lot of the significance also is like in freshness. And it's also in a lot of cases quite a bit more cost effective because, you know, as a as a largely import dependent um, city, Hong Kong going to the supermarket can often be quite an, an expensive affair. So it's, yeah, it's it's really just kind of part of the daily life of some Hong Kongers. And that kind of goes against everything that has been, been said in a lot of the newspapers here, which is very interesting to hear. Um, I guess, what kind of products then, just to kind of get this 100% kind of clear in people's minds, when you walk into a market, are you purchasing kind of locally caught things, so then more seafood, or is it what kind of products would you kind of walk into? Yeah, so I know that uh, when when my family has gone, you know, often to buy things for like big family dinners and stuff, we usually just pick sea, uh, seafood, a lot of which is caught locally, yeah. Um, otherwise, you know, you'd be seeing, as I mentioned, like probably poultry as well, Although my family tends to err on the side of caution and not, we, we like, we kind of steer away from the live poultry markets and stuff just because of other, you know, associated health scares. Um, but no, you'd be buying vegetables as well. Um, and yeah, definitely. And I think in probably contrast to the common misconception, probably you wouldn't be walking in and seeing rare and exotic animals or illegal illegally traded or you know poached smuggled animals just sitting there waiting to be bought that's really just not something that at least I can say in my experience has has ever happened <laughs> yeah so I guess kind of to, I guess it would be kind of the kind of Hong Kong equivalent of a kind of a farmer's market or some sort something like that where you would kind of go I would go to buy kind of fresh vegetables, steaks or freshly baked goods, that sort of thing, more than this kind of sketchy thing that is being painted as. Yeah, it's definitely like a, a place where you just sort of, it's very normalised, you just kind of go to get produce. I know a lot of people prefer to go to supermarkets instead. Again, this is a part of like old, like older Hong Kong culture that is, I don't think it's being phased out, but it is, at least among my age group, I find it less common for my friends to to go and shop there, but it could just be a, con a convenience thing, honestly, from from that point of view. But yeah, yes. it's very much like you know your comparison to a farmer's market. That's that's also how I would characterize it. Perfect. That's very very interesting. I think that'll help a lot of people. I guess when they are next reading a newspaper and they see that term kind of pop up, I hope that will kind of help them maybe rethink the way that the the market is being being talked about. I think that moving on, the final thing that I would like to talk to you about is the perception of pangolins and the relationship to COVID-19. Certainly in the UK, and I can see similar narratives emerging from other places in the West, such as the US, the pangolin has been deemed almost guilty by association to the virus due to the discovery of the species within Wuhan, the area where it is speculated to have originated. I was wondering if you, also being within the Southeast Asia region, had noticed a tendency to place blame on the pangolin 
or if the narrative is kind of less focused on blame there? Yeah, that's that's actually a really good question. I mean, when everything was sort of starting out, you know, when uh, the situation was worsening, I think around late February, early March, um, I was actually still in Scotland at the time before I had to sort of hurry back to Hong Kong. <laughs> um, uh, so a lot of the early reporting that I saw in it was probably exactly the same reporting that you would have been reading. But I I didn't notice much of a shift in terms of reporting, at least when, when I went home, because what I was reading in Scotland was basically saying, where did, where did it originate? We we're bamboozled. We don't really know. And in Hong Kong, again, it was also, where did it originate? We're still bamboozled. We don't really know. Um, at least that's the stuff that I was reading. And certainly, like, pangolins were mentioned, um, I think, as potentially an intermediary source, right? Um, potentially live transmission and also possibly in um, live wildlife trade markets. But articles that talked about this were kind of speculative. I still, and correct me if I'm wrong, I still don't know whether they have fully managed to confirm this or narrow it down as yet. It seems like every few weeks they sort of come out and say, we're not sure again, we don't really know anymore. Yes, um, I, yeah. I think the last, the last paper I read was kind of, Oh, it's it's a very close match to a pangolin. It's very close, and it could have come from this place, and it could have come from that. But it's very hard to pin down. I think with all of these things, getting kind of to patient zero is so very difficult to say exactly what they did and exactly what they consumed or what they were exposed to is is very difficult. Right. Yeah. So. I guess in light of that, I haven't seen things that are specifically blaming the pangolin as such. Like, it's really hard, I think, or it would be kind of unreasonable, in my opinion, to blame a a, a creature like the pangolin for, you know, something that occurs or occurred naturally, you know. But uh, I think what I'm seeing more discussion about is, you know, the, the sort of human-based practices, you know, concern about the trade of live animals, which um, in Hong Kong, you know, not pangolin specific, but in the past, I remember being in Hong Kong at a time where they've had to do mass culls of imported chickens from other areas around the world that they, they were intended to be sold live at wet markets. But um, the government, the agriculture department found specimens of um, avian influenza. And so they had to cull the entire stock. So it's really not is really not a pangolin sort of specific thing when it comes to transmission of, of viruses and stuff. It's certainly sparked maybe a conversation, if anything, about the broader practices and ensuring that really stringent measures are being taken in, in these live trade markets. Um, certainly, I think the Hong Kong Department of Agriculture is pretty on top of that they're very kind of proactive about testing and taking care of things. But, you know, everybody is concerned during this time. So they kind of want to make sure that it's even more so. And of course, like as a parallel, it's not it's not direct, right? Because pangolins are endangered. They're, the trade of them is illegal, whereas other animals, you know, like a chicken, it's it's kind of hard to compare. But it's it's prompted a wider discussion about kind of the live animal trade in general. And certainly I think perceptions towards the illegal wildlife trade are definitely 
negative, but I wouldn't say that the, the, the pangolin itself is, is being blamed. It's more the practices surrounding it that have attracted some more heat, you could say. That's very interesting. Very, very interesting. I guess kind of touching on something you said uh, a second ago there, you kind of said that it prompted these kinds of discussions. Is that something you've experienced more of then with, I know it's hard to get out and about, see friends and family at the moment, but is it something you've kind of experienced with people who might not necessarily have, have talked about these issues before? Or are they talking about them more now? I think, as you said, you know, it's kind of a difficult time to be socialising and out and about. What I can say is that like a family discussion and stuff, you know, we're maybe not talking about sort of the pangolin specifically, but in terms of the the general sort of practices and making sure that they're, you know, sanitary and also in, in the case of illegal wildlife, obviously not happening at all. It has definitely come up in sort of dinner dinner table conversation as well. And like more broadly speaking in Hong Kong, I think we've seen maybe not maybe not specifically as a direct result of of the pandemic, but certainly, as I said, with a shifting awareness over time, people are becoming more and more vocal. And I'm sure they probably will be even more so now in light of everything that's happened about sort of increasing legal measures, um, making sure that smuggling is punished with a proper deterrent, because I believe that up until a few years ago, one of the maximum sentences that people could get, even if they did smuggle a huge haul, like what you mentioned, 8.3 tons or something. The maximum was two months or something. But um, we were seeing maybe what I hope is a positive shift. Um, earlier this year in May, I think late May, a sentence was handed down in Hong Kong where people were sentenced to, I believe, like about three years instead, which is still, you know, not not great, but making progress. And perhaps, you know, due to the timing, maybe maybe it did have something to do with this um, these concerns. I don't know. So I think that's an excellent place to kind of leave the, the discussion today, uh, a slightly positive and hopeful um, place to leave it. Um, but before I let you go, I do have one final question, which is I wanted to ask if there was one thing that somebody listening to this podcast should take away from our discussion today, uh, what should it be? What would you want them to to think about? I think that I would have to say not to underestimate the importance of awareness. Like I mentioned to you during the chat that, you know, when I was younger, I was really, really unaware of these kinds of things. And this has only been something that I've become more aware of recently. And even just from, you know, knowing you while you've been doing this project, I've I've been inspired to do more reading as well. But I think that if anybody's really looking to sort of make a difference as, you know, hopefully when it comes to issues such as the preservation of very, very endangered species, we all should be trying to do is to just talk to people, find out what they're thinking, try to raise awareness, because definitely I think in Hong Kong, at least so far as I've been able to tell with maybe some of my friends and family, but also just on a wider level, the raising of awareness has coincided with stricter punishments or like more up to code sort of legal measurements and stuff like that. I think I saw something about a a survey that was done a couple of years ago where they surveyed a random sample, I think, of Hong Kong residents and they asked them, you know, do you still support the use of pangolin scales in traditional Chinese medicine? 
And, you know, these people, the sample across, you know, all walks of life in Hong Kong, the overwhelming response was no, they don't. So it shows that attitudes, even if they're kind of deep-seated cultural ones, or even if perhaps people were just apathetic to begin with, they can become, they can take a position and be against it, and it can make a difference. So just be reading up, be talking to people, just be trying to promote awareness, I think. That's what I would say. Well, that is, I really like that piece of advice. For the listeners at home, you cannot see me, but I have a big smile on my face, because that is a very, I love that answer. That is a very, very good answer. Well, thank you very, very much for your time today, Penny. And yes, I hope to talk to you again soon. I'm sure Uh, we will. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you very much. Welcome back. Well, what can we take away from this interview, and from the series as a whole? In terms of this interview, I think it's extremely important to listen to the experiences of those placed within the regions most affected by these issues, as it is only then we can tackle them effectively. Penelope's experiences highlight that whenever we read about something, we must think about how issues are framed. Why might someone be making wet markets seem evil or bizarre? Why might someone be making the pangolin a villain in this situation? What excuses or motive are behind these claims? There are multiple reasons to keep this on our mind, but the one which is the antithesis of our conversation with Penny is that as soon as we villainise a group of people for practices they have never seen or participated in, it shuts down the conversation and it creates issues. This is especially the case when the group accused seem to be, both from Penny's experience and from the law changes in China and Vietnam, making progress. In terms of the series as a whole, I think the major theme that has emerged is awareness, awareness, awareness. And that's awareness not just in the sense of knowing about the pangolin and the threats facing them, but also in the sense of being aware of the context in which these situations manifest, and knowing enough to act and actively make a difference to Pangolin around the world. To help you with that last point, I've put together a supercut of some of the advice given by our experts for you to listen to so you know exactly what to do if you want to make a difference. So without further ado, please enjoy the advice of our wonderful, brilliant, fabulous experts. The most important takeaway is that understanding a local context 
to a conservation problem or a conservation issue, whether it be hunting or whether it be illegal trafficking is extremely important. And judging what's right or wrong based on being outside the bubble of people trying to make a living, because that's what everyone around the world is trying to do, to make a living. And it's extremely difficult at the moment, actually. Um, being outside the bubble where people are, are trying to make a livelihood in their conditions and then making judgment calls which could affect those livelihoods negatively is really counterproductive and I think is actually harming conservation more than helping it. If anybody's really looking to sort of make a difference, talk to people, find out what they're thinking, try to raise awareness, because definitely I think in Hong Kong, at least so far as I've been able to tell with maybe some of my friends and family, but also just on a wider level, the raising of awareness has coincided with stricter punishments or like more up to code sort of legal measurements and stuff like that. If you're interested in preserving any species or helping any species, but especially something like a, a pangolin where um, information isn't just there on your news feeds or your Twitter feed or, or however you get your information, then make an effort to find out more. Do some research, educate yourself, and then you'll be able to educate others Ask the questions. Um, something I always, always tell children whenever I'm teaching them is, don't just believe me. <laughs> no, point, no point in me telling you something. You just going, yep, okay, I'll believe that. Like question everything, anything that you come across in your everyday. Just question it. Why is why is that happening? And I think that's especially important for for conservation. Why is it happening? Where is it happening? How can I stop that from happening? what's actually happening in my country that's contributing to that. If we if we think about exotic species, and we mentioned at the beginning about being able to, to travel the world and, and see these things, and you go to go to a market and you want to buy your, your pal a wee, a wee present to take home, like just be careful about what you're actually buying and where you're buying it from and what your impact is whenever you, you go away somewhere and how you can reduce that impact. And that was across the board. How do you reduce your, your overall impact um, on anything? And um, how do you learn more? There's a handful of things that people can do without having to really try to do much. Mm. So one of those things, as we mentioned, was you know with the climate change. The only thing that can combat that is for us to accept that it's there and take action in our daily lifestyles to reduce our impact on the environment. And that's not just for pangolin, that's for all wildlife and for our Earth to reduce our, our impact on Earth, reduce our pollution, try and live more cleanly. You know, a, a good saying is, you know, like the slow and steady wins the race. It's not about making major lifestyle changes, but about making small lifestyle changes that you'll keep up for your whole life. So mm -hmm. rather than trying to do something that's maybe not sustainable for you, that's 
a huge change that you'll only do for a month, it's not going to be that worthwhile. But if you can make small changes that you will be able to keep doing the rest of your life, that's going to be a lot more valuable. I think one big thing in my mind, and this, this is just a personal opinion, is like business travel, especially now in the times of COVID-19, we're able to do so much virtually. And I think, you know, going forward, people need to think when traveling for business, is it really necessary to hop on a jet and fly across the world? Because if you look at how beautiful some of these environments have cleaned up in such a short period of time because we have so few planes flying and so few cars driving that it's actually, you know, for the sake of things, driving less and flying less has been great for the environment. So whatever people can do there is, I mean, it's that's for the whole everything, Mother Nature and all species. Um, but Pangolin in particular, I think awareness is such a huge thing. People abroad, if you can share stories and share information you know if you follow a good conservation page or whatever you know keep sharing that information and keep raising awareness um about it and of course like obviously fundraisers are always good but always look into look into it deeply because a lot of fundraisers the money doesn't go where it should necessarily go but i think spreading awareness and education is so important So I guess the one thing I would say to people is it's difficult when you see a, a golden eagle above you to know whether it's being trafficked or not. But you can see, you might not be able to see the drugs or the arts and antiquities, but you can see the face of trafficking in terms of human trafficking of people who are effectively slaves in Scotland. And it's uncomfortable and you don't know if you've seen right or not and you don't know if you're accusing people unnecessarily. But if it doesn't feel right, it probably isn't. Report it. Go onto the website for trafficking and report it. So somebody will investigate it and just check that it's okay. Mm -hmm. And I guess that's what the message I'd say to people, unless we can bring this to our awareness that trafficking is an issue. Because when I started looking at this two years ago, the most common response I got from everybody that I spoke to was trafficking doesn't happen in Scotland. We don't have any. Mm -hmm. So we might not have any pangolins, yeah. but it's all it's all linked all collaboratively linked right across the globe so to call it pangolin to call it vietnamese to call it arts and antiquities to call it burmese or or it happening in america or whatever it doesn't matter it's it's just one enormous network right across global issues and so the only chance we have on a local basis of being able to fight this is if people are aware horse trafficking is going on it's going on right around you so just go away and think and be aware and start thinking yeah you know that probably wasn't right Okay, the, 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 the takeaway for this is that we need to take environmental change much more seriously. There's, there's a sense that COVID has come along and has become more important mm -hmm. than environmental change, climate change, whatever you want to call it, and that, that we've taken our eye off the ball. One of the things that COVID has shown us is that certain things we have been told are inevitable, it's just the way the world is, are in fact political choices. Mm. It has shown us albeit under very unusual conditions, that we can live in different ways. And I think the very early weeks of lockdown, people began to understand what mattered to them a bit more. People 
I mean, it's, it seems a bit trite, but people could hear birdsong in the city. People were enjoying time to see family, to walk about the place. The government suddenly discovered it can be quite socialist and, uh, and so forth. I would like this experience to make people a little bit braver about challenging what we are told is the norm and think that we can do things differently. And I think it has to be around the environment because, as I said in, the, in your answer to the last question, this, this will not be the last pandemic. There's, there's evidence to show that you know, zoonotic diseases are something like 70 or 80 percent of the diseases that humans face and the um, spillovers are becoming more frequent. Mm-hmm. And we have set up an ideal situation for a pathogen to get around the world in 24 hours and spread amongst us very, very quickly. Um, if we don't do something, this is just will just have been a dress, dress rehearsal. So that sounds a bit melodramatic as a line to spin. <laughs> I quite like a little bit of melodrama can all go a long way, I think. So when you walk away from this series, think about the wider context of your actions. Raise awareness by talking to your friends or your family, or by sharing this podcast with someone you know. Question what is established. Act in an eco-friendly way. Raise the alarm if something just doesn't feel right. And most importantly, do not stop fighting. Strong yet essential messages all of us should take away. All that remains now is to conclude. Once again, I would like to say a massive thank you to all of my guests. Jamie Ormiston, who taught us of the importance of education. Dr Morgan Hopflash, whose work in Namibia helped to teach us the value of the pangolin. Kelsey Prediger, whose invaluable research taught us the threats facing pangolin. Dr Chris Lusk, whose work with Catrice helped to give us a better perspective on the issue of trafficking. Professor Joe Sharp, who taught us of zoonosis and the power of contextualising your actions. And finally, Penelope Jacobs, who taught us to reconsider everything we read in the newspaper. I would also like to say a massive thank you to each and every one of you for listening. Please continue to look into this issue, make the small changes, and never stop fighting against the plight of the pangolin. Thank you.